So, as Matt said, we're going to be preaching through the book of Colossians. So you can turn there if you like. Those of you who are quite new to Christianity and the Bible, uh, you can have fun over the next 10 minutes or so trying to find Colossians. <laughs> Give you a little clue, it's towards the end of the Bible. Um, but I thought it would be good to kick off with a few facts, because we haven't preached through this for quite a lot of years now, and uh, if you haven't read it yourself for a while, then uh, you might want a little bit of information about what it's about, and uh, who wrote it, etc. So, it was written by the Apostle Paul, as most of the New Testament was, around AD 60, so there's only about 30 years since Jesus has uh, died, risen again, and ascended to the Father. The early church has been slowly uh, growing through uh, Jerusalem and the area around Israel, Samaria, and now it's exploding across the Greco-Roman world. And uh, when Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, he's writing from prison. He's writing in Rome under house arrest. And uh, like with so many of his letters, you, you might expect doom and gloom if he's there in chains. But it's not. It's just full of joy. It's full of positivity. It's full of his thankfulness and faith, which is just phenomenal. But unlike all the other letters that Paul writes, it's not written to a, a big, significant city. Colossae was not like some of the other cities that Paul wrote to. So you've got Ephesus, the letter of the Ephesians. You've got Thessalonica. You've got Philippi. You've got Rome. These cities are key cities at that time in the world. They were influential, they were powerful, they were centres of trade and commerce, they were on trade routes that meant that anything that happened in those cities, it could just travel out to the furthest ends of the earth. They were like strategic cities, if you like, but Colossae is different. It's not quite so impressive or big or influential as any of those other cities. It's, it's more of a small town, really. It's a backwater which sets it apart from some of the others. And uh, so there's something about that which um, I connect with being a bit of a small town guy. I quite like Totnes. I spent a bit of time in London uh, and I really like Totnes. <laughs> I don't want to particularly live in a big city. If God calls me to a big city, I'll go to a big city, but I'm so grateful that he hasn't. Because there's something about the, the smaller town where you can know people can bump into everyone as they walk them down the street and, and it has just a completely different feel, doesn't it? And church is different in the big city than it is in the small town. And yet, here's Paul writing to this town maybe a bit like Totnes, which I really like. But he, the other interesting thing about this letter is he's writing to a people that he's never met. Paul has never been to Colossae. And we might think that was quite a task. Um, just imagine writing a letter to a town that you've never visited uh, and being heard. It's a bizarre thing to do when you think about it. Imagine writing a letter to the Liverpudlians or writing a letter to the Glaswegians and telling them uh, all sorts of wonderful things and also what they need to do with their Christian faith. You can just imagine the Glaswegians would be like, I can tell you what you can do with your letter. <laughs> they might just think it's completely arrogant, you know. Uh, 
I'm sure there's lovely Glaswegians as well. Um, but it's, it takes some doing. I can't imagine being able to do that. What qualifies Paul to be able to write instructive and directive words to a bunch of people he's never met before? We'll get back to that later on. So this church in Colossae, it was planted uh, some years earlier while Paul was in Ephesus. So if you remember, Paul based himself in Ephesus for about three years, just preaching and preaching and preaching out of Ephesus. Uh, and they had this place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus, which was uh, just a, a centre of Christianity in Ephesus. And from there, it said that that was a time when the gospel spread with great power right across the region. And the whole of Asia Minor had heard of what was happening in Ephesus and who this Jesus was and what he can do to transform life. And so it was an amazing time. And uh, during that time, one of the members of his team, a guy called Epaphras, was sent out to this area where Colossae was, um, which was in the Lycus Valley. And he was determined to share Christ in the three cities in that area. So we've got the three of them being Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae. And Laodicea and Heropolis were the more influential cities in that group of three. They were the ones that were full of um, retired Roman generals, who were full of people that had uh, influence and power across that area. And they were the, the main trade centres, Laodicea uh, and Hierapolis. And then just a bit further up the valley was Colossae, which was actually a smaller town. So uh, Epaphras had, had gone to work in these three places, to share Christ there. And we learn from the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon, we looked at about 18 months ago with a, an extraordinary drama, um, which I wrote, uh, <laughs> about how that house church had developed. Because Epaphras had gone there to and, and planted this church in Philemon's house, and it had grown from there, from Philemon's house, out across this town. And by the time Paul is writing now, a huge proportion of this town has come to faith. So why is Paul now so concerned about the church in this small city that he's never been to? Well, as so often happens, this town was rapidly becoming a centre of an alternative school of thought. They were beginning to alter their interpretation of the identity of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. In short, people had begun to doubt both the deity of Jesus and the sufficiency of his death on the cross and begun to recast Jesus as simply a human guru figure or possibly a human being who was possessed by an angel. That was the dominant uh, school of thought that was beginning to grow in Colossae. Ultimately, they'd begun to construct a new humanistic philosophy, drawing on Jewish and pagan and Gnostic ideas, as well as Christian ideas. And in this new school of thought, the only way to achieve salvation was to access higher knowledge or enlightenment through special revelation, which can be received by living out an increasingly elaborate holiness code. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> We know that this kind of philosophy 
is extremely attractive to people. It's very, very powerful. There's a, a myriad of versions of exactly that across the world today, and there is a whole smorgasbord of options that are very similar to that here in Totnes. Any philosophy that claims to promote goodness and righteousness among its community seems healthy and will always attract big-hearted community types. Any philosophy that promises the opportunity to attain a higher state of being, free from temptation and struggle and ignorance, seems worth pursuing. And any philosophy that offers practical ways to prove your righteousness and how well you can live promises to give one the feeling of being sorted and conscientious and respected by everyone. And the problem is that those philosophies, though they look attractive from the outside, and the people who live by them are often really lovely, wonderful people, on the inside, when you get right to the heart of those humanistic philosophies, what you'll find is they are simply another way of striving to earn salvation. To be good people, to be good enough. I've had some fantastic conversations across this town with leaders of alternative spiritual centres, alternative spiritual philosophies, and um, I've always treasured those conversations. Um, I've learned a huge amount and I've shared a huge amount with people. And some of those uh, people that I've met have become friends. Some of them uh, are, as I've said, big-hearted, wonderful people who are trying more than anything to improve the life of the people that they're in community with and they're following their philosophy with. They want to live lightly on the earth. They want to respect uh, one another. They want to respect the planet. They want to... Uh, pay attention to that which promotes health and wholeness and life and well-being. And they're deeply respectable people, most often. Uh, people that I've enjoyed spending time with. But what I always come away with <clears throat> is this sadness in my spirit. That that which they are so lovingly striving for, doesn't lead them to a place where they, their soul has arrived and can stop striving and find peace and be just enough. Loved to the core of your being. There's a sense of tiredness that I often get, even alongside the, the goodness, the wholesomeness, the righteousness, the creativity. There's a sense of Never quite making it. And even if you're really, really, really good at following whatever humanist philosophy you have, there is always a sense that it's never quite enough. There's never quite contentment at the end of the road. And when you start to love these people, that starts to hurt. Humanism as a religion can be very painful. If people find they're not very good at living out that brand of humanism that they have subscribed to, they can be left feeling inadequate, isolated. It always seems like everyone else has got it more sorted and got it down more than you have. You know? If you, people find they're really, really good at their brand of hum humanism 
and they've reached higher levels of knowledge and holiness by one's own quality living. It's hard for people not to become a bit arrogant and self-righteous, and I've met a few of them as well. Perhaps most importantly for us is to know that any philosophy that is centred around holy living and superior revelation has absolutely nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing. Because true Christianity is centred on the Son of God and his finished work on the cross. End of. That's where we find full salvation. He is all we could ever need for salvation. He, he has lived the holy life. He is the spotless one. He's done it for all of us. He's made holiness available to us as a gift, purely of his grace. We didn't earn it, we can't attain it, but we can receive it and allow him to fill us with it and clothe us with it. None of it is down to us. We don't have to work to gain access to, it, to some higher level of revelation or be promoted to some higher tier of humanity to be acceptable to God. Because the moment we said yes to Jesus, that same moment that we believe Jesus died to redeem our lives, that moment God declared that we are authentic sons and daughters of the living God. There is no higher knowledge than that. There is no higher tier of human existence than being an authentic son or daughter of God himself. Full co-heirs with Jesus. There's no more work to do. That is basically the truth that runs through the whole of Colossians. Jesus is all in all. So we call this series All or Nothing. Our faith is clear. We either receive that Christ is, all that Christ is, and believe all of the implications of his atoning sacrifice, or nothing at all. We don't have any other option. So just to drive the point home, we can't say we want to follow Christ, but we're not sure we want him divine, or born of a virgin, or resurrected after three days, or eternal, or the one through whom and by whom and for whom all creation was made and holds together. Remove any of those things and we have a Christ who cannot save and cannot transform a human heart. It's all or nothing. Neither can we follow a Christ and also say we need X, Y and Z to be good enough. You end up in the realm of performance-based religion, again with no power to save or power to transform the human heart. And it's exhausting. So Paul is writing to these believers in Colossae with the heart of an apostle desperate to safeguard this young church from being hijacked by a seductive brand of humanism and by reminding them of exactly who Jesus is and who they are as his people. So not surprisingly then, we have in this one letter some of the most phenomenal descriptions of who Jesus is. It is so dense with theology and so centred on Jesus that we've had to break it up into about eight sessions because it's just phenomenal stuff. I just want to read you a little bit of it. Let's turn to uh, Colossians 1 
And this isn't actually in my passage, it's in Matt's next time, so I'm going to nick it from him. Just to read it out, because you've just got to get a flavour of what's in this, this amazing letter. Colossians 1.15 Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was, created, anything was created, and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Wow. I mean, drop the mic. That is phenomenal. That's just five verses from this incredible letter. Paul is not messing about, is he? Someone has told Paul that the believers over there are suggesting that Jesus might just be a guru or an angel. And he is like red rag to a bull. He's just charging. He, he cannot cope with it. Something in him just explodes with truth and passion. And he picks up his primary weapon which is his pen. And he starts to write. And what we end up with is an, a complete unleashing of breathtaking theology. So, let's start from the beginning. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you, and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and that your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the, about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Let's just pause there. What gives Paul the right to write to, to every believer in Colossae? Number one, he is called by God to be an apostle. One sent by Jesus to establish his church. So it is appropriate for him to support them. And I think they would have heard of this man, Paul, because of his 
preaching in a nearby Ephesus. And because Epaphras was sent out from his team, they would have known who he was. He would have had some endorsement and they would have understood that this was his role. This was his uh, commission from God to be able to strengthen the churches and to speak to them in this way. That's number one. The second thing that qualifies him to speak to them about pretty much anything is that he has not stopped praying for them since he heard about them. There's something powerful that is established when someone commits to pray for you. Someone that has been faithfully praying for you and asking God in a passionate way, in a consistent way for you, to, for his blessing for you for a, a period of time. It just establishes a connection in the spirit whereby there are certain kinds of communication that can happen that are difficult in any other way. And I really believe that when someone's been praying for you in that way, they can say even the hard things and it comes across with a ring of truth and love in there because they have done the hard yards in prayer. Amen? So he has the authority to speak to them. He's won that right to speak to them through time on his knees. But what I love about this passage is that Paul shares what he's been praying. I'm so grateful that Paul didn't just say, I've been praying for you, now let's just talk about some stuff. Actually, he shares with them exactly what he's been praying for them. And as I read this prayer that we're about to read from Paul, I really sensed from Jesus that this is God's prayer for us. This is God's heart for every believer that has said yes to Jesus and committed themselves to follow him. So as I read this next bit in Colossians from verse 9, I want you to hear it for yourselves. So often we find ourselves praying for all sorts of things, coming to God, asking for his grace and his favour for things. But you know what? God has a massive heart towards you and he prays for you. you know, Jesus intercedes at the Father's right hand for us. And here, just in the same way as we can see in John 17, when he's in the garden, he's about to go to the cross and hear Jesus' prayer. I think we hear some of Jesus' prayer life coming through Paul as Paul has just captured something in the heart of God for the believers. And I believe that these are God's words for us today in this church. This is Jesus' desire for your life. Back to verse 9. So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. I know some of you are seeking for his will for your life at the moment. Some of you I know has been asking God, what is it you want me to do? What is this next season of my life to be about? Some of you that have transitioned from a very busy working life into semi-retirement or full retirement, often these questions come then. Actually, I've just been able to put down a load of responsibilities. Um, I've got a bit more time on my hands. Lord, where do you want me? What do you want me to do? What's, what's my purpose in this next phase? And sometimes those questions can be difficult to answer, can't they? It's wonderful to see your hearts when people share those big questions with me. I just want to know what God wants to do in my life. I want to be right in the centre of his will in every season. 
what I want you to hear this morning is that he sees your heart. He sees those of you who are longing to be in the centre of his will. It can sometimes feel like you've been waiting a long time. It can sometimes feel like maybe God has passed you by or forgotten you. Uh, that somehow this season of your life God's not interested in telling you what he wants you to do if God seems particularly quiet. But I just want to preach Colossians 1.9 into your spirit this morning. God wants you to have complete knowledge of his will and he wants to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. He wants that more than you do. So be encouraged. Keep listening. Keep stirring up your faith. Keep standing on the word of God. Keep submitting your life day to day, one decision at a time before God. Keep telling God just how much you want to be walking in his will and in his plan. And he will make his wisdom known to you. He will give you the next steps. He has not forgotten you. He has not passed you by. He has not written off this phase in your life, whatever it is. He goes on to say, Then the way you live will always honour and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. Did you know that the best way to please God and to be fruitful in ministry is to passionately seek his will and his wisdom? If you seek to always be right in the centre of his purposes for your life, to the best of your understanding, and if you listen for his wisdom in your daily choices, the word says you will honour and please the Lord and your life will produce every kind of good fruit. I love the idea that God has planned to produce things from my life that I haven't even begun to think about yet. God has got all sorts of good things he wants to draw out of your life, fruit that he wants to bring forth from your life that you don't even know about yet, but he already knows about. If I think back over my life, uh, there's all sorts of things that God has, has done and brought forth that I wouldn't have dreamed that he would have brought forth in my early 20s or teens. If I think of my four daughters, you know, that's extraordinary when I see their, who they are and who they're becoming and uh, just what a crazy, busy, big house I have now. If you'd have shown me that picture when I was 20, it would have just blown my mind. But God already knew what he was doing and what he was going to bring forth through me when I was 20, even though I couldn't see it and I'm quite glad he didn't show me. Because <laughs> I might have just freaked out. Um, but I love the idea that God already knew about that. Yeah. And then I think, well, what else has God got up his sleeve? What other things do, does God want to produce from my life when I turn 40, 50, 60, 70? God has got fruit prepared that I don't even know about. I love that idea. And he's got it for you too. But it does say at the beginning of that bit of his prayer, it says, then the way you live will always honour and please the Lord and your life will produce every kind of good fruit. So there is a then involved and it, so they, it requires our cooperation. The then comes after the seeking of his will and learning to follow his wisdom and understanding day to day, moment to moment, one small act of obedience and trust at a time. 
The second half of verse 10, all the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. This is unique to Christianity because our faith is fundamentally a living relationship with Christ. We can only grow as believers through relationship with Jesus. There's no magic, there's no techniques, there's no special skills or abilities required. The only way to grow as a believer is through humbly getting to know him. And that's it. That's all we need. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that create a level playing field in the kingdom where it's all about learning to be the sons and daughters that we've already been declared to be? That's it. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom in that way. Paul goes on in verse 11. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience patience that you need. Did you know that? Did you know that God wants you strong and full of his glorious power? The kind of strength and power that's mentioned here is the kind that enables you to endure and to wait. To endure and to be patient. In other words, when life gets tough and painful and exhausting, that's when Jesus wants to fill you with his power so that you can stand. We all, some of us, not all of us, some of us knew a wonderful man that used to be part of this church called John Wright. Hands up if you remember John Wright. I love that man. He was an absolute legend. He was part of the leadership team here. He was very prophetic. Uh, He was a great evangelist as well. He was just a phenomenal senior social worker uh, with a twinkle in his eye and a passion for Jesus. Um, And we loved him to bits. Now, John didn't always have an easy run of it. But he was always so full of faith and joy. Just oozing out of him. You could just see it in his face. It was phenomenal. And I remember uh, having a conversation with John about wrestling in prayer over things. Things that were really tough. Things that, that were a real battle. And I was just learning about wrestling prayer and what that was all about. And I remember John looked at me with those sparkly eyes of his and announced, I'm a wimp. But he's not, and he lives in me. And that was how he lived his life. Phenomenal. He was like, it's got nothing to do with me. If you knew me, truly knew me, you'd know I was a wimp. But he's not, and he lives in me. And he became one of the strongest men I know. He was just a, a pillar of strength. He knew firsthand what it meant to be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you could possibly need. That's available to all of us. We can all admit to one another, I'm a wimp, but he's not, and he lives in me. Back to verse 11. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. Well, if John Wright maybe was a shining example of someone walking in the power of God, I want to honour Chris Sparks this morning. that we've just lost as someone who knew how to walk in joy and thankfulness. There's something about Chris that just shone with joy. Always. Whatever. She struggled. She was suffering towards the end and yet she would always find some way 
to share joy in the most phenomenal way. And I think it's that came from this heart that she had for thankfulness. She was always thankful. Whenever you talk about how things are going and what was going on, she would just bubble up with everything that she was thankful for. She was so grateful for all of the care and the attention and the fuss that was being made of her, even through the hardest parts of her cancer treatment. We're going to miss her enormously. But she understood there was a connection between thankfulness, thanking the Father, and an inexpressible joy that comes from God. The two are linked. Joy doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from our response to the goodness of God. And we can all learn to walk in thankfulness. And then joy grows on its own. Paul finishes this incredible prayer with these words. He has enabled you, and that's all of you. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Again, I believe God would have us to understand that this is how he prays for us, that you, that you, that you, that you, Simon, that you, Richard, that you, Jane, that you would possess and walk in the full inheritance that belongs to God's people. Insert your name here. That we would be free from every area of our fears, our flaws, our addictions, and always 100% forgiven for our sins and our failings. Don't you love the idea that Jesus never stops praying that for you? He isn't finished with any of us. He's not done. And he won't be done until you're complete. He will keep praying and praying and praying to the Father for you. He won't stop until you're totally free and in full possession of the inheritance that belongs to you as a son or a daughter of God. I don't care what it is that holds you back. I don't care what it is that has a grip on your life. I don't care what it is that is a character flaw or a brokenness from your past. I don't care what it is that prevents you from knowing the fullness of the Christian life. God can deal with whatever it is. And he is never going to stop working with you until you are 100% whole and standing in him as a full son and daughter, possessing everything that Jesus went to the cross for. And you may have been battling with something for years and years and years and years. It's still not over. Because he ain't never going to give up until you're free. So never give up yourselves. Never let your faith drop. Never let your trust in the one who holds your life and prays for you. In the great restorer of life. Never let your trust in him drop. Never let your faith drop in him. Never doubt God's grace and favour over your life because his prayer for you is both, is both constant and glorious and it will come in wave after wave after wave. Paul couldn't bear the thought of this Colossian church trading that in for some humanist 
philosophy that has no power to save. And so as we go through this preaching series, I want to encourage all of us just to consider where we are going to, to draw life from. Who do you say Jesus is? How much power do you believe he has to save? Do you believe that every area of your life can come under his powerful, transforming love? Because I think it's time to get freed up in some ways. Amen.